as we get ready to continue our series from Love Letter from God, I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Job chapter 42. We're going to read from Job chapter 42. And we're reading actually from the very end, basically, of the book, although it's, it's really kind of the last thing that Job talks about in the book. We're, uh, we're reading that because we want to get to the part where Job kind of figures out things. But we've concluded the history books in the first part of the Bible. That's kind of the first books that we have gone through, those have all been kind of the history, the history of the children of Israel as they were their own country, before they were their own country, kind of the history of where they are, where they've been, and where they got to eventually. We left them in exile, partially in exile, partially returned to Jerusalem at the end, so they were kind of scattered about they had worked on rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. That whole project would not be completed until the time of Herod when he would actually rebuild, rebuild the temple in all of its kind of former glory. Most of the work that they did had been to build the walls. And then last week we talked about Esther. Esther was kind of the capstone of the history piece that talked about how God used Esther to save the people again. This week, we start with wisdom literature. And wisdom literature takes us from Job all the way kind of through to uh, the Song of Solomon. And that is a very kind of an interesting set of, um, set of books. We're going to talk about Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and um, most of what these books are is poetry, and that includes Job. So today we're going to read from Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Let us pray. Hide me behind your cross, Lord Jesus. Articulate the Father's heart through my voice and let the Holy Spirit breathe new life to us, opening our ears to hear the message of God. Amen. Job is kind of an interesting book. We think of Job as this icon of patience. You've heard it, the patience of Job. It's talked about a lot. People think that Job just silently suffered. And Job had a lot of suffering. If you look back at the very beginning of this book, what happens to Job is this. 
Job starts out with everything. He's very wealthy. His marriage has made him the father of several children. He has lots of land, lots of animals, all of the signs of wealth in ancient times. He has them. He has children to carry on his name. He has everything. And in all of this, he has been very careful to be grateful to the God who has provided it to him. He has spent a lot of time being an advocate for others who are not as fortunate as him. He has spent a lot of time worshiping God. He worships God for himself. He worships God on behalf of his children just in case they may have done something that they need forgiveness for. Job is a symbol to us of piety and righteousness. He has done nothing wrong. And in the middle of that, this story that we read here is about how he loses all of those things. And there's a part to this that's kind of part allegory. Allegory is a kind of literature type that tells us a story by showing us something else. And so in this story, Satan, or a adversary, is really the correct Hebrew word, comes to God and says, well, I've been all over the place, and I don't see anybody who really worships you. And God says, well, have you looked at Job? He worships me. And Satan says, oh, of course he does. <laughs> You've made it really easy for him. He worships you. He has everything. He has money. He has livestock. He has fields. Of course he worships you. What else would he do? And God says, I bet you. Take away all of those things. And see what happens with Job. So, in very short order, the story goes, Job loses all of his livestock, loses all of his fields, loses all of his children. He loses the wealth that he has now. He loses the opportunity to pass that wealth on to a future generation. He loses his legacy. He loses everything except his very life or his health. And at the end of it, the way the story goes, it tells us that his servants just keep coming. He has like four servants left, and each one of them comes and tells him that he's lost another thing. And at the very end, when the last servant comes and tells him that his children have died, Job worships. He says, the God who gives is the God who takes away and I will worship him. So the adversary goes back to God. He says, well, of course. You didn't let me touch him. His physical being is still fine. Of course, he thinks he can rebuild. He's fine. God says, you know what? Go ahead. Touch him physically. 
And then scripture tells us that Job is afflicted with a skin disease. And the word that they use for the skin disease that he is afflicted with is not just a a little rash. He's afflicted with a skin disease that is so intense and so challenging, it rots his skin. Job wishes he could die. It's so bad. It's pussy and gangrenous. And it is afflicting every inch of his body. And his wife comes to him and says, Oh, this is horrible. We're buried under affliction. We are suffering so much. And you can't even die. Curse God and die. She says to him, And he says, no. I can't curse God now for my affliction and only praise him when he gives me good things. That's not who God is. And then over the course of some time, Job goes into this period of mourning. And he has some friends. Everybody has friends, hopefully. We'll see. Job's friends come, and they sit with him in silence for seven days. They're just there with him. That's a good friend. If you've ever suffered through something, sometimes what you need is just somebody to sit beside you and not say anything not do anything, just be there for you. But at the end of the seventh day, Job finally says some things. Job says, I am miserable. I am suffering so much. I wish I was never born. I wish I was never conceived, in fact. I wish my mother hadn't been able to sustain life in her body. I wish that once I was born that she hadn't been able to sustain life through her feeding of me. I wish that I had died as an infant. I wish that I had never known all of these things. And Job says, I wish I could die now. And through all of that, he's saying all of these things because he's in misery. He's suffering. It's hard. It's horrible. And he pours it all out. He lays it all out. And he begs God to take him. And his friends, God bless them, his friends are not the best. As it turns out, they have an understanding, and it's, It's not a bad understanding, but it is an understanding of who God is that doesn't quite jive with who God actually is. And their pronouncement to him is, well, Job, and they say it eloquently in very long poems of beautiful words. Well, Job, 
You need to figure out what you did to make God punish you. And we've heard that before, right? We've heard people say that to us sometimes. Or maybe we have, God forbid, said it to someone else. Not in those words, right? We say it nicely too. We say things like, God doesn't ever give us more than we can handle. It's one of my least favorite. It is not scriptural, FYI. Or we say, well, uh, you better look back and see what you did. Where's your, where, where's your, where's your faith? Maybe you're not, maybe you're not trusting God enough. Maybe you need to trust more. And the whole time, the reality is, it doesn't matter if you're righteous or you're not righteous. The things that happen in our lives, good and bad, are reflections of lots of other things. They are not a direct result of being sinful We're not sinful. Otherwise, we wouldn't see bad people prosper. People we know are not paying attention to God would not be living lives of abundance, right? If really all it was, was we had the golden ticket, all we had to do Oh, if I come to church, I'm going to praise Jesus. If I praise Jesus right and enough and live my life for him, then I get the Cadillac in the front. I never have any more bills. I never have any more heartache. All my my healing happens. That's not how God works. And it's and Job maybe doesn't a hundred percent know that that's not how God works yet, but he knows he knows that he didn't do anything wrong. He knows that he has not sinned. He knows that he has been faithful and that he continues to follow God. So he knows that his misfortune, his suffering, is not the direct result of something that he did. And I think it is so important that we know this and hear this and understand it to the depth of our being, our suffering. When we go through bad things, when we go through hard times, when we have things that are difficult and challenging and messed up in our lives, those are not punishment for sin. God has made it very clear to us that our sin is not punished by specific direct result. We have consequences, don't get me wrong. There are consequences to things that we do. Right? If you sin or break the law, you might go to jail. Those, that's a consequence. That's not a punishment 
for your sin from God. That's a consequence of the reality of what sin does in your life. Consequence of sin is that you break fellowship with God. That is not a punishment of physical things. Scripture tells us that God put God gives rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. God's grace pours out on all of us. God's abundance pours out on all of us. The blessings that we get from God for following God have all to do with our relationship with him and his presence with us, not physical things, not healing from ailments. We can ask God for those things, absolutely, and God sometimes gives them to us. But that does not mean that it is a direct, it's not like you have a piggy bank you have to fill up with faith. And then when you get that jar full enough, then you can trade it in. Like, you remember the old Wheel of Fortune? Right? When you would spin the wheel and you'd win a puzzle. And you'd get, like, this amount of cash you could spend on, like, the specific things in the little showroom area, right? They had this Dalmatian for a while that everybody was like, it was like the thing that they had this Dalmatian that would be there. But you could like pick and choose the things as long as your bank didn't run out. You could, you could pick and choose what you wanted to win out of that little section. And you could win it because you had already won the money to, to pay for it. God's blessing isn't the wheel of fortune. It's, it's not like that. You don't save up righteousness and then trade it in for a new car that's not how it works now job later as he continues his friends don't give up easily they go through three cycles of these you know job saying something and he's kind of talking to his friends but he's really kind of talking to god he's kind of got this whole thing it's beautiful poetry if you ever get a moment to read through Job and read some, it's beautiful poetry. But at the end, Job is kind of now, he's like calling out God. He's like, God, I don't get it. I, I really don't. I, I've done nothing but been all, done all the right things. And I, I wish you would give me an answer. Tell me why I am suffering. And God comes in the form of a storm and talks back to Job. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you when I built the storehouses for the snow and hail that I can use at my command? Where, who are you? Is your arm long enough to be powerful? And he reminds Job of who he is in this relationship. So when we get to 42, when we get to the end of the chapter, we read that Job says to God, I know you can do all things. I get it. I, I'm not able to do those things. 
And he says, I spoke of a lot of things I didn't understand, and I get that now. He said, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Now we know Job didn't actually see God in physical form. What Job is saying is, in his suffering, in this moment of unremitting, unrelenting, horrible things that have happened to Job, he clearly sees who God is in that moment. And it is through the suffering that Job draws closer to God. That Job realizes more who God is and how God operates. It's through these moments of deep pain that Job sees God most clearly. Sometimes that's the same for us. I'm not telling you that God brings you suffering. I'm telling you that in the suffering, when we read in Scripture that God works all things for our good, in the middle of the things that are challenging, the the middle of the things that are hard, sometimes the good that comes out of them isn't some thing that we can tangibly hook our hearts onto, but it is instead drawing closer to God, leaning in for the very presence of God in those moments. It's God walking beside us. It's God being visible and present to us through people who come around us, through the things that happen in the middle of it. Job's suffering ends with repentance. But it's because he forgot who God was. And Job's repentance, when Job repents, Job doesn't know what's going to happen next. Job doesn't know if this is going to end his suffering or not. What he knows is that God is with him in it. What we also know now is that not only is God with us in suffering, but God has suffered for us. God, in the person of Jesus, has experienced suffering too. And it is that suffering, because we know that our God, our Jesus, has suffered, we also know that he understands our suffering. We have hard times. We live in a sinful world. Sin results in actions that have consequences. There's disease and there's things that are hard. But we have a God who's with us. Job's story, because this is an allegory and it's telling us a story about what happens in Job's story, we read not only does Job repent, but he also offers worship on behalf of his friends. He brings them back into fellowship with him by offering repentance for them. 
They haven't done right by him. They've been kind of harsh. They've sort of insulted him in the middle of his suffering. They made it worse. All of the things that he was going through at some points, they made it worse. They started out with great, great, great intention. The end was not so great for them. But Job worships on their behalf. And they are forgiven. And Job ultimately receives more from God than he had at the beginning. It's not a story about if you worship right, you get more stuff. It's a story about if you suffer, you draw closer to God. Every week, as we have gone through our series, we have talked about what it means to see God's love in Scripture. And we start with our key verse, the verse that kind of tells us that God loves us. John 3.16, For God to love the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him would have everlasting life. So what does it mean to say God loves? God loved us enough to create us, to form us from the dust. God loved us enough to let us fail, to let us choose our own way, to let us chain ourselves to sin and defeat and heartbreak and death. God loved us enough to provide a rescue, a way back. Through wanderers, murderers, adulterers, defaulters, promise breakers, foreigners, strangers, and lovers. God loved us enough to show us mothers, judges, kings, and prophets who loved and spoke for God and kept reminding us of the promise of redemption. God loved us enough to show us how evil and wrong continually mess things up and how obedience to God fosters holiness and bestows blessing. God loved us enough to send us Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, to preach and live peace, grace, hope, joy, and love. God loved us enough to see Jesus rejected, to see him die, to see him buried. God loved us enough to raise Jesus from the dead and send the Holy Spirit to remind us of all we have in him and empower us to live like him. God loved us enough to want us to live like Jesus, an abundant life infused with all the fruit of the Spirit, redeemed, free, loved. God loved us enough to still let us choose our destiny. God loved us enough to promise the hope of forever, of resurrection from the dead and judgment. God loved us enough. God loves us enough. God will always love us enough for God to love the world. God loves you. God wants you to know it. God wants you to live in it. God wants you to be able to love others because you know you are loved. And God's love is expressed to us every week most tangibly as we gather at this table. The son who died and yet lives gave everything so we could know the depth of God's love. So come, drink the wine, eat the bread. Know you are loved. God loves you. Go love the world with him.